Ah, okay. Are we live yet? Are we live yet? Selamat pagi and good morning. Welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show Morning Edition. It's so great to be able to do this when it's daylight. <laughs> uh, so nice. And oh, I was just I was just listening to another live cast. So it's video and audio. It's by this guy named um, Mike Kane. He's this pastor. Let me look him up again. It's on Facebook. It just appeared on my feed. Uh, I've watched it a couple of times already, but uh, this is the first time I caught the entire thing. So encouraging, so encouraging. So it, his name is Mike Kane. He is a pastor at Emmanuel Westbury. He has a YouTube channel. And every day, every day, I think in the mornings at 8.45, he reads through the Psalms. He's at Psalm 78. So presumably he's done this 78 days already. So really, really good. Thank you so much, Mike Kane. Um, yeah, very, very encouraging. Nice bite-sized reflections on uh, Jesus in the Psalms. Yeah, that was great. That was good. Um, we are continuing on our reading today. Um, in the morning, usually I do this every day at e in the evening time, and so I get to eat breakfast while I do this. Wow, I have my nice biscuits. Here in UK, we have these things called nice biscuits. It actually says the word nice on the biscuits. <laughs> it's actually quite nice. And then it's nice to eat it with my kopi, my Singapore kopi. Oh. I really have to watch myself when I drink this because I go really hyper. But today, today I have a reason for this because I have such a busy day. Is, is the music coming through? I have such a busy day today. I have a team in the afternoon, this Bible study, and I really, really want to get this uh, recording for the Philip Project done on the Gospels. I really want to get that done today. Uh, I'm so sorry, Jeff. It, it will be done. <laughs> That's why this morning we're going to do uh, the four readings straight away. Going to get it done first thing in the morning. I was waiting till it was nine, so it was like at least reasonable to start speaking out loud. Otherwise, I want to wake my neighbors. I do feel sorry for my neighbors. Every night, six o'clock, they must hear this crazy guy reading the Bible. But anyway, I've tried to. Sorry. <laughs> can hear them. Today, Wednesday, February the 24th, we're looking at Exodus chapter 7, Luke chapter 10. Job chapter 24 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, please would you guide us, uh, navigate you know, our way through your words such that we always land on Christ. We always get to that destination, to the cross. Um, help us especially with those tricky issues, with understanding them, and help us to focus on the main things, on the big things uh, to do with your salvation, your goodness, your godness in the Bible. We need that, especially in these moments. You know, when we seem to be aimless, we, our hearts seem to be drawn in all different directions. Help us to retune it back to you, like Mike Kane, you know, says. You know, we need to retune our hearts every morning. So thank you for Mike Kane. Thank you for his podcast. Thank you for his congregation and his ministry in the Word. Help us now to refocus our attention and our hearts on Jesus as we read the Bible this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, one bite of nice biscuits first. Can be a kopi. Oh, I wanted to say sorry to the people who wanted to join the barn interview tomorrow. I think it's kind of like a closed event, and because they have this kind of like regular group going every week, so I publicized it on my Facebook group. On my Facebook page, sorry, but I think 
it might just be for regulars. Um, but thank you to those of you who were interested in that interview. What I'll do is I'll make that interview, at least the, the answers to the questions that I get asked, I'll make a video of that. So I'll answer that and then you'll be able to watch that instead. No, if you're interested, if not, then, you know, just ignore this. But if you are, you know, uh, really good questions they've come up with uh, by my friend Nicholas at the barn. Um, it's really, really cool uh, just to reflect on motivation as to why you're doing these things, because I, I honestly, I don't think through them very much. And it's kind of challenged me as well. You know, is it actually good to be doing these kind of things, especially on social media? There are challenges there, are, you know, things that you need to be watching out for. And so those are questions, really, really um, probing questions. And it it was really helpful for me. So I think uh, I'll share the answers with you. Um, who knows, maybe I'll do it today. Maybe I'll do a version of that today just to prepare uh, for the actual event tomorrow. Yeah, uh, but sorry again, it's my fault. Maybe I shouldn't have put the word out um, that quickly, but I'm just so excited to be with them. I think they're doing such an amazing job at The Barn. The Barn is this international cafe for visitors here to Cambridge. Um, anyone really who who wants to learn english and make friends here and especially during this time it's really hard to do both of those so this is one platform that helps them uh in um learning something learning english and also just to build that relationship those friendships um especially as strangers here in this uh uk land uh, but yeah thank you so much to the barn people for inviting me i'll see you tomorrow uh, we'll start with our first reading exodus chapter seven okay Oh, that was nice. That was nice. It's got like coconut in it. Yeah, nice biscuits. Not sponsored. <laughs> Exodus chapter 7. <laughs> Where is it? Okay, here it is. Exodus chapter 7. Um, cool. And then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. 
Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you've not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians would not, could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart, heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. I'm just going to turn back um, to chapter 1 uh, because I'm reminded at the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So interesting. So this would have been the Pharaoh before this Pharaoh because remember he died. But the last Pharaoh ordered that all the kids who were born, all the sons, be thrown into the Nile. And now, you know, I think it's symbolic, therefore, that the Nile has changed the blood. You know, maybe reminding Pharaoh of how his rule caused all this death, all this murder. You know, seeing blood everywhere, in the, in the Nile especially. You remember Moses himself was saved from the Nile. You know, his mother built this mini ark, this, this mini casket basket for him. They floated on the river. So, yeah, there's a lot of symbolism here of God's judgment of God's power, but it's all for it's all for Pharaoh's benefit. Interestingly, that he may know that I am the Lord. He keeps repeating that, repeating this, that the Egyptians, that they may know that I am the Lord. Not just Moses will know, not just the Israelites will know, but this is done for the benefit of their oppressors, as if they don't know, they don't realize just who they're dealing with. They're dealing with God. And so there is this almost evangelistic, if you think of it, it really is almost evangelistic nature to judgment that they need to realize that this is a God who judges us for our oppression, our injustice, especially against his people. So let's look at it again very quickly, just going through from the beginning of chapter 7. You know, God speaks to Moses and then Moses speaks the same things to Pharaoh. You would think, you know, why doesn't God just speak directly to Pharaoh? But God speaks to Moses and then Moses speaks to Aaron and then Aaron speaks to him. That's There's this chain of command, if you like. You know, the Lord said to Moses, I made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother will be your prophet. <laughs> As if, um, you know, God, you know, he sends 
Moses to be like God. And I, I remember reading this years and years ago as a young Christian. Indeed, when I started doing this Bible plan,、um, and it really troubled me. You know, how is it that Moses can be like God? But I think it's because, precisely because,、um, I don't know, because Moses isn't like God. If that makes sense, you know, this eighty-year-old guy who can't even speak on his speak very well. He has to get his brother to speak for him. So he isn't the most confident、uh, person. But God uses him to speak His word. So Moses like God not because you know he looks like him or acts like him, but precisely because he has God's word with him, and he's meant to speak this word. And this word is meant to be passed on through Aaron. So it's meant to be verbatim. It's meant to be there's meant to be some integrity in speaking this word of judgment to Pharaoh. And so you are to say everything I command you, verse two. And your brother is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites out of his country. But verse three, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What an interesting response that God causes in the hearer. You know, you speak the gospel, you speak this command from God, and God causes that person to turn away. God causes that person's heart to become hardened, to become like stone, to kind of like oh, clench himself. No, I'm not going to listen to this. You see, both are from God, the command as well as the response. And though I multiply my miraculous signs, God says in verse three, and wonders in Egypt, verse four, He will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And verse five, all this is building up to the purpose. You know, He speaks. Pharaoh hardens. He will do his miracles. He will save the Israelites, but the purpose only comes in verse five. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. It's almost like a warning sign, so that the Egyptians will know that He is God. The Israelites need to know this, and I think the Israelites also don't realize that God is God. If you remember, right up to chapter six. Moses, the Israelites, their leaders—they're all going. God, you've caused us more trouble than help. <laughs> But the way in which God proves to them is by proving to the outsiders, to the nations, that God is God, and then they will see that God is the one who God is the one God who saves. So, verse six: Mo- Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Isn't it interesting? I mean, that God does it this way. You know, God almost wants to reveal all the hardness of hearts, even Pharaoh, even in us, even in Moses. All the apprehensions, all the all the why, you know, why was God do it this way? You know, I wouldn't do it this way if I were God. You know, is God really able to save all these? He almost wants wants all this to come out, and then he'll prove. It's almost like any good Chinese drama whereby you know things get really, 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 really bad towards the end, and then. You see how things can be really, really good. God wants to bring out all the evil and all the opposition, even though it's really bad as it is. You know they're in slavery, but He wants to bring it out all the more, and then He will show just what a powerful, what a good, what a gracious God He is. So then we have these two signs、um, in verses eight and、uh, th- these two sections. So there's one with the staff and the snake, and the other with the blood and the Nile. The staff and the snake is interesting because that's the first sign. 
you know, um, uh, Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle. So Pharaoh himself, verse 9, will challenge them, say, do something you show us to me. Aaron will do a miracle, and then his magi magicians will kind of compete and copy it. So Aaron is commanded to throw the stuff onto the ground, turns into the snake. Uh, verse 11, Pharaoh summoned the wise men, and they did the same things by their secret arts. So, uh, but of course, Aaron's stuff swallowed up the snake. So it shows that, you know, his snake is more snake-like, more, <laughs> more powerful. Again, you know, when I read this as a young Christian, why snake? Why, why not something, you know, not so menacing like kitty cat? Uh, but no. <laughs> yeah, you know, can't imagine, you know, stuff and it turns into a snake. Uh, there is a scene in Prince of Egypt you know, um, yeah, that was that was a cool one. And the snake eats up the other snake. I think they just used the silhouette of that because it's kind of gross. You can imagine how the snake eats up the other snakes. But the idea is, number one, Pharaoh copies this. He dismisses it. And in a sense, in a sense, they're able to mimic God's power through these magical, mystical arts. You know, they're, they're dismissed by competing against it, by offering an alternative to God's power. And so Pharaoh becomes just more reassured that, you know, he doesn't have to repent and turn and, you know, believe the miracles that he asked for. Uh, verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to them, just as the Lord has said. So that's the first sign. But then comes the actual plague. So this is one of nine plagues, and there will be a tenth, but the nine main plagues, and the plague of blood is the first plague, or the first act um, that that uh, of judgment and it's, it's all bad you know it's all blood I mean it doesn't get worse than that it's symbol of death they um, especially on this on denial because that would denial for them was the source of life the Nile is where they got their food their water you know everything they depended on it and so God struck it as a source of death Again, maybe a reminder of how Pharaoh had killed all the firstborns by throwing them into the Nile. So, um, verse 14, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, God says. He refuses to let the people go. And so, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. And some say it's because this is the time when Pharaoh would go out to worship his God. He would go out to the Nile in the morning, first thing, his routine. He say, wait for him there and to meet him. And then take your hand, in your hand a staff that changed into a snake, and then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you've not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know I am the Lord. And okay, so this is meant to be for his benefit, for Pharaoh, your benefit, to know that God is God. So God is so interested in them repenting and them acknowledging the godness of god you know it's it's interesting isn't it you know god isn't just interested in us as christians for those who trust in him to know that he's god but actually in those who reject him have you ever thought of that those outside the church those who reject him those who don't believe in god god actually has a vested interest in even them knowing that he is god how does he do this? He does this through judgment. Yeah, this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. The fish will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. 
So God told Moses, tell, tell Aaron, take the staff, stretch your hand over the waters, and everything, not just the Nile, streams, canals, ponds, reservoirs, everything turns to blood, you know, even in the buckets. You know, so you, I can imagine them drinking, drinking coffee, and it, oh, it was turned to blood. <laughs> yeah, so, oh, so inconvenient. And meaning it's not just um, some pollution or something. Everything, you know, every source of water, you know, it's turned to death. Every source of life has turned to death and judgment. And so he raises the staff and everything is struck. You know, all the water was changed to blood, verse 20. The fish died, verse 21. The river smelled so bad, they couldn't drink its water. Blood was everywhere. But, verse 22, again, this, these magicians step in. And they did the same thing by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart became hard. He wouldn't listen. And so again, you know, they are able to copy, they're able to mimic. And now it shows that they are, you know, the Bible doesn't say that it's false. It doesn't say, it does say it's less powerful. But to some extent, they are able to copy God's acts of judgment. And so they offer an alternative explanation, an alternative thing to believe in and to trust in, to fear fear instead of God, you know, and yeah, so idolatry and that competition for people's attention and just to give that excuse to ignore everything that God is doing in your life. So verse 23, instead, this, this is quite symbolic. He turned and went into his palace, didn't even take it to heart, meaning he just forgot it. You know, this huge thing had just happened. He just, he just ignored it. He said, no, oh, it's nothing. Didn't even take it to heart. Didn't even consider it. And all the, the other Egyptians, they had to dig for water along the Nile. They couldn't drink the water. Interesting. Uh, so two things we see here, that God has this vested interest in people who reject him to acknowledge him. So not just the Christians, not just the believers, but the unbelievers, and precisely those who hate God to understand that he is still God over them. But secondly, you know, one of the reasons why we do reject God and ignore God. So not just reject him, but say, oh, it's not, it's not important. All this is irrelevant. It actually didn't really happen. It's because something else captures our attention, something that tries to compete for God's attention, you know, compete for, it tries to mimic it, tries to offer an alternative, although not as satisfying explanation to it, so that we can have that, that excuse, so that we can harden our hearts against, you know, God's word, especially. So that's what we see in Exodus chapter 7. Yeah, very relevant. Uh, think of, um, you know, what does God have to do to get you to acknowledge that he's God? And, you know, the moment you come up with any kind of, you know, any kind of uh, reason that you say, okay, this won't cause me, whether he heals you, whether he actually appears to you. So a lot, that's a big thing amongst a lot of my friends. If he appears right in front of me and speaks to me, if that actually really happened, the truth is, we would find some way to dismiss it. And God would still do it. I mean, God will, would still, um, at the end of the day, be able to say that I've given you every proof and every reason to trust in me. And here's the reason why you've rejected it. You've turned your hearts away from it. Because I caused you to do that. You know, we have no excuse for our reasons for ignoring and rejecting God at the end of the day. Mm, yeah. Yeah, interesting, you know, why didn't God just save them, just, kick, just take them out? Didn't he do the last plague at the end? But no, he's building up that resistance 
And that's what God is doing today in Romans chapter 1. You know, he, uh, the wrath of God is revealed against, against all creation, you know, because it's been revealed. Uh, I, mean, I shouldn't misquote that. So let's look to Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all the godliness, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So God has made it plain, but we suppress the truth. And the more that God reveals, the more we suppress. That's what we see in Pharaoh. That's what we see in Egypt. Paul says that's what we see today, that there should be this obviousness that God is God, and therefore it makes it obvious that we suppress that truth about God. Mm, okay. Exodus chapter 7, moving on to Luke chapter 10. Oh, this coffee is so nice. Oh, I really shouldn't drink so much of it. And I don't, I don't, you know. Um, but still, that's why it has such a profound effect on me because I just don't drink coffee very often. Ooh, nice. Which gospel should I focus on? Um, I'm, that's the question that's in my head as I'm thinking through that Philip Project video for about the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm very, very tempted to just go with Mark because that's the one that everyone, you know, everyone who does uh, an overview of the gospels always does Mark um, because it it is so structured. And uh, you can find... I, I guarantee you, if you search Gospels overview, you'll get Mark's Gospel. Uh, it's harder to do uh, with John, for instance. You have this seven signs and the seven I am sayings. Actually, it might be more than seven signs, might be eight. But uh, still, um, it's not as linear, it's not as structured as Mark. And, you know, Luke, um, I think uh, Luke, because there's Luke Acts, and so it, you, it's only complete if you consider both of them, both volumes. Uh, Matthew, Matthew is an interesting one, or the theme of God being with us. And if you trace through that, you know, Jesus is Emmanuel. But then towards the end, you know, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Great Commission, I am with you to the end of the age. So that theme of how is it that God comes to us, be with us in Jesus, especially on the cross and now the Great Commission. So it's a very evangelistic, very missionary gospel. And I guess that's a whole, you compare all the different kinds of um, Gospels, you get a different perspective and a very enriched view about how it is that Jesus' death on the cross really achieves that salvation for us. Um, but yeah, Matthew is just so appealing because again, it's very clear, very, very pithy, you know, very short uh, accounts. You know, you can actually analyze bits and then see how they relate to other bits um, I'm still thinking. I'm still thinking. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's what's going through my head, thinking about the Gospels. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Here we go. Luke chapter 10. Can you see focus? Uh, oh, we're going to be looking at the Good Samaritan today. Oh, interesting. Okay, Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or a sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will go, will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, "Even the dust of the town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you." Ah, even this dust, wipe off against you. Ah, <laughs> yeah, wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this: the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy and said, "Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name." He replied, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names." Are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, says, "I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him." Then he returned. Then he turned to his disciples, and said privately, "Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it." So, he sends out, and he receives back these seventy-two. Some versions have seventy. Um, well, not apostles, but. Other agents, you know, he sent them out. Actually, the word is apostle, but he sends them out as messengers. So he's about to go to these, these villages, but he sends them out ahead and gives them instructions. And then towards the end, they come back and they say, "Oh wow, you know, all these things, amazing things happened. Even the demons submit to us in your name." And some questions come up, you know, why is it that Jesus sends out this seventy slash seventy two people? He's already sent out the twelve. Maybe he just needs more people. Why is it that Jesus tells them don't take anything? You know, just depend on whoever receives you, and you know whatever they give you, eat that. He keeps saying whatever is given to you, eat that and take that only. If they don't receive you, then wipe off the dust off your feet. You know what's the symbolism of that? Finally, what's this business in verse eighteen about seeing Satan fall from lightning?、Uh, so those three questions, maybe just deal with that. So number one. Yeah, some alarm just went off. 
Yeah, usually on Wednesday we we used to have these、uh, fire alarms, but they changed it to a different system. So you you might just hear a little beep around ten o'clock. The beep beep used to be dong, used to be huge clanging bells. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Okay, so firstly, why seventy seventy two? There's a symbolism here with、uh, Genesis chapter ten. If you remember Genesis chapter ten, just before the Tower of Babel, you know it's the repopulation of the earth after the flood. You know, of Noah and Noah's sons repopulate the entire earth, and this is then the list of all the nations of the earth. So seventy descendants. It's saying that all the world, and Jesus almost like sending out now his agents into all the world. You know that that's the symbolism of this. Now the gospel initially he sends out the twelve to just the Israelite villages, but now this is simple symbolic of how the gospel is going out into all the world. So that's why seventy or seventy two. Also, if you remember how Jacob's family they all moved to Egypt, there were there were about seventy seventy about there, and so that there's always this symbolism with the word seventy. It's always seven、um, times ten. You know, again God's fullness times ten. You know the nations. It's meant to symbolize how the gospel. Of the kingdom is going out into all the world, and indeed, it mentions some、uh, Gentile cities here. He says, "You know, Tyre and Sidon." You know, verse thirteen. You know, woe to you, Bethsaida. That's a local town. If the miracles that were performed in you, this local town, this Jewish town, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Meaning, Jesus had been operating mainly among his Jewish audiences, among the Israelite people, preaching about the kingdom of God. But if Jesus had done the same things in people who did not know God, people who weren't the people of God, they would have repented long ago. And so, same with Capernaum, especially another Gentile. That's actually Jesus's hometown. You know, it, will you be lifted up? No, you will be. You will go down into the depths. So the proud, his own people. Will be humbled, but actually all these outsiders. And the symbolism is that Tyre and Sidon is that to the north of、um, Galilee, the north of the northern region of of Israel. And so, if you were in South Korea, say you know North Korea would would、uh, repent before you. If you're in Singapore, you know Malaysia would repent before you. If you're in Malaysia, Thailand would repent before you. If you're England, Scotland would. It's <laughs> it's the people up north who don't have the same benefits as you. If that makes sense, you know you have all these privileges of hearing the Bible, of hearing Jesus, of having Him perform all these signs before you, but you haven't repented. They would have a long time ago, and therefore, at the end of the age, they will be exalted, and you will be humbled. You will be judged. And yeah, so that's the symbolism again: seventy symbolizing the Gentiles, symbolizing the whole world who will repent before His own people. Secondly, why does he say to these people, "Don't take a purse or bag"? Verse four,、um, and you know, if they give you peace, verse five, you know, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, you know, your peace will rest on him. If not, you will return to you. Almost like peace is something that you can give, and then will they receive this peace? Will they receive this gospel of peace? And they will receive it by receiving you. So verse seven, stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you. And this phrase is repeated: whatever. Don't be picky. <laughs> don't say I'm vegan. That kind of thing.、Uh, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So here, the idea of wages of being paid for ministry is not a salary. It's actually subs substance. What's that? Is that a word? Sustenance. You know, it's just food and drink. 
is cukup makan as we would say in Malaysia, you know, and that actually is a very biblical concept for ministers. Now it's good to be generous, and I think you know it. It shows how loving a church is when they're generous in providing a salary for pastors. But here, Jesus is speaking to the ministry workers themselves. You know, be content with whatever they give you, and even if they don't give it to you, then there there's a response to that. But you know, um, you should be content, and whatever they give you, especially if it's just cukup makan, that is what God has given you. It's a response to the gospel of peace that you preach to them. They become a man of peace if they receive that. So it's a realism that uh, Jesus is speaking to these seventy ministry workers. You know, he says to them, "We need more." Verse two: The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There are lots of you, but actually, we need a lot more because there are a lot more people who still need to hear the gospel. So pray, pray for that. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His. Harvest field, and it's dangerous. Verse three: I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. So expect to be rejected. Expect you know difficulty and hardship. That should be the norm, and that's important. Then because when they do return, they they say, "Oh wow, it's fantastic! Good mission trip." Verse seventeen: They returned with joy and said, "Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name." But Jesus is trying to temper those expectations. Actually, I'm sending out you out into Difficulty into danger, wolves. You're a lamb; they will eat you up. And you know situations whereby the towns will reject you. And so when they reject you, they are rejecting me. So look at verse eight. When you enter the town, you're welcome. That's good. But if you're not welcome, verse ten, go into the streets and say, even the dust that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this: the kingdom of God. Is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember Lot's day, you know when it was entirely destroyed by this fire from heaven. You know it will be more bearable for them, Sodom, than for your town that has rejected you, who preached the gospel to them. It shows that actually you have a greater message than judgment. You speak speaking to them peace, this gospel of the kingdom. And rejecting that has more dire consequences than even committing all the sins that caused Sodom to be destroyed by that fire and that sulfur from heaven. So, yep. Okay. So,、uh, tempering expectations、um, amongst ministry workers,、uh, and this brings us to Satan falling from heaven. Verse eighteen. Jesus says, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." This idea of him. Being thrown down, lightning from him, boom! You know, from the highest heights, he's sent down, and it might be, might be a picture of how he's fallen because of his pride from his height.、Uh, and it, it, that certainly is the connection. Verse nineteen: I have given you authority, you know, trample snakes, overcome power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that all this is happening; that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names. Are written in heaven, meaning you don't rejoice because you're up here. Because like Satan, you can be down here, you can be thrown down, you can be up in heaven, you can have all the power of heaven, all the authority of power, power, all the spirits submitting to you. That's not what you should be rejoicing in. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of in the book of life. Now it's talking about again ministry. When things are working well, everyone is responding, and you think that you've done 
amazingly well. You're faithful. You're fruitful. You know, everyone is, you know, welcoming you. Oh, wow, amazing job, Pastor. That was such a good message, such a good live stream. Don't rejoice in that. Jesus says, just rejoice that you yourselves are in heaven. You yourselves have been saved and forgiven. You know, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice, verse 20, that your names are written in heaven. Just rejoicing in the fact that Jesus knows you. You know, hey, you know, your names mean Jesus actually knows your name. You know, one day Jesus will actually say to you, hey, <laughs> you know, hey, Kelvin, can you imagine that will, what it sound like? You know, some of us, um, I think if ever that happened in public with someone like famous, imagine the queen coming to your school or to your workplace and saying, hey, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> hey, Kelvin, how are you doing? You go, oh, what? You know me? And that is something to be rejoiced in, that God knows your name. That goes, God, and not just your name, knows everything about you. And that time will come when maybe you'll be having coffee with Jesus and you'll be talking with him and be going, wow, you know, <laughs> he knew everything. He knew that I was doing this. He knew everything was all my struggles. He knew all the things that I thought no one saw that even I forgot. You know, that's something to really look forward to. And it's not all this, you know, temporary kind of like glamour or even success in ministry, having a big church, big congregation, having people tell you how amazing your sermon is that you know it's even that even that is nothing compared to just knowing that you are saved that jesus knows your name and that your names are written in heaven then jesus praises god you know full of joy in the holy spirit i praise you father lord of heaven and earth because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned revealed them to little children it's a very humbling thing when we know something, it's because we are children before God, you know, almost dependent upon Him. This is not something that I worked out because I'm wise and learned, but God has revealed this. How, how is it so? Because He's speaking to me as my Father. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Blessed are your eyes. If you see this, kings, prophets wanted to see this. You know, everyone, Moses included everyone in the Old Testament wanted to see this. John the Baptist wanted to see this. He didn't see this. You guys see this. You, you, you know, simple or you. You know, if any of this makes sense, that Jesus really is God. He really died for you in your sins and you are forgiven. God has revealed something to you in your heart that the most privileged powerful prophets in the old testament moses did not see you see you know and you are blessed much more than them let's move on verse 25 on one occasion an expert in the law expert in the law stood up to test jesus teacher he said what must i do to inherit eternal life what is written in the law he replied how do you read it he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I like how at the end, this expert in the law, who initially gave this perfect answer, love God, love neighbor, and Jesus says, you've got it right. You know, you have answered correctly. Imagine giving that correct answer in class. Jesus is your teacher. And Jesus says, correct. <laughs> and he says, do this and you will live. And Jesus asks a second question and he gives the right answer again, but he doesn't say the Samaritan. He doesn't say, who is it that who was a neighbor to this man who was you know, left for dead, left and fell into the hands of robbers? He says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus gives the same response. Go and do likewise. Meaning the first answer has a connection to the second. The first answer says, love God, no, love neighbor. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, love God is that one love. That one love of God results in this one love of your neighbor. It's a reflection of one and the same thing. This one love that comes from God overflows to the people around you. And he gets it. He knows it. He's the expert of the law. He knows that the Bible says this. But then... What does it mean to actually obey this? Jesus says, go and do this, go and do this, go and do this. And then he realizes, actually, I can't. And maybe more so that I don't actually want to. I, I don't want to do this. And coming to that realization is actually a very helpful thing to realize that we can't actually do this. It's, it's nice to say it's a great thing to have as a teaching point in Sunday school. Make sure you love your brothers and sisters, friends. But realizing that actually we don't want to and actually we've fallen really short of this kind of love. So he gives a scenario, this man who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the idea that he mentions this man, you know, the other people are, are, are identified, you know, uh, the Samaritan, Levite, priest, these three other people. But this man is just a man. He, that means anonymous. He could be anyone. He could be your friend. He could, But you can't tell because... Whatever identifying marks on him has been removed. You know, he's beaten up. He's stripped of all his clothes. So no ID. You can't check his ID. Oh, is he, is he Malaysian or not? Oh, Malaysian, I'll help you. Singaporean, no, I won't. <laughs> but no, you can't. You know, he's stripped of everything. He's been robbed of everything. And he's left half dead, almost mati, almost going to die. It means it's really, really obvious that this person needs help. But the first two guys are too busy. To help this guy the first guy is a priest he's going down the same road he passed by on the other side and it's maybe that half dead aspect you know maybe he's fully dead 
you know, and therefore if I touch him, I'll be unclean. You know, priests going to Jerusalem, notice that this is a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, going down, that's maybe he's on the way to, you know, go to the temple. I need, I have to go and preach today. You know, I'm too busy. Uh, maybe on, on the way back, you know, that kind of thing. And so almost using ministry, almost using God as an excuse not to help this man. Same thing with the Levite. Again, um, what's the difference? You know, not much difference. Both are religious people. Both are very similar to this expert in the law who says, who has the right answer, meaning they know the Bible really well. They know that the Bible tells them to love one another. But here is that actual scenario where they're meant to love. Oh, uh, um, I'm too busy. Or maybe God says, you know, maybe this is not the thing to do right now. Or maybe they're afraid that it's a trap, you know, because they can't tell, you know, this road has lots of robbers. Maybe someone's going to attack me. So maybe for my own safety, all kinds of excuses you can come out not to love, especially if you're religious, especially if you know the, know the Bible. But then this guy named a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the man where he was, verse 33, and then he took pity on him. Before he did anything, he saw him and he took pity on him. There was that heart response that then overflowed into that action, that faith in action, that love in action. First thing that he did was he just noticed him. And I remember when one brother that I really respect, I asked him once, you know, what do you want to hope to achieve? in your one or two years here, you know, he was doing ministry here in Cambridge. He was this really young, very, very faithful guy whom I really, really respect. I asked him, what do you hope to achieve? You hope to get people, you know, prepared and trained for ministry. Do you have to get that enthused? He says, I just hope that they will be able to see one another. And he was talking about internationals. He was talking about uh, just, you know, other students in the university just to notice the needs and the wants of the people around them. And that's what this person does. He just notices that here is someone who needs help. And I'm the one who's here in this situation to offer that help. Verse 34, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. You know, first class treatment at his own expense. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave to the innkeeper, look after him. You know, when I come back, I'll reimburse you. You know, he gives him in advance and he promises to give even more so that this person is saved in his life, but also can be cared and brought back to fullness of life. This is generosity of, for a stranger from a stranger. You know, he doesn't know who this guy is. And worst of all, he is a Samaritan, meaning he is number one, not a priest or a Levite because he could never be a priest or a Levite because he's a Samaritan. He's, he's again that North Korean counterpart of South Korea. He's that person who you know, worships a wonky version of God. He's, he's disqualified from the people of God. He understands a bit about God, but he, again, he's a bit, a bit suspect. You know? His theology isn't very good. So he's that church that you know, your church says you know, their, their theology is bad. You know, they're, they're preaching the wrong. But actually, he's the more loving person compared to yourself. And, in, and or to me even, I mean, I'll feel convicted if I met someone like this. And therefore, Jesus specifically chooses this person to be the hero who shows compassion towards this stranger. And then Jesus then puts up this three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, verse 36, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And this guy could not bring himself to utter those words, Samaritan. It's almost like Singaporean saying, the Malaysian. <laughs> You know, how can a Malaysian be better than a Singaporean? How can a Malaysian church have better theology than a Malaysian? They don't. We probably don't. We are more 
you know, watered down. But then suddenly, hey, how come they're more loving? How come they're more? How can an international? Church, how can a Chinese church, you know, show more love than say a a big student church that has you know pastors who write books and preach the gospel more faithfully than them? But you know, suddenly they are the ones who are helping people during this past year of the pandemic. You just look back to this past year, so many needs. Which of the churches? Which of the Christians have actually responded to that? Very convicting truth. You know, it's it's there in history. Have you done so? It'll be obvious. Have you not done so? That will be obvious as well. Well, he couldn't bring himself to say Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says the same answer. No, the same answer to that first question. The first question, you know, what's the most important commandment? He says, love God, love neighbor, do that. Which is the one who loved him? The Samaritan. Go and do like that Samaritan church. Almost like saying to Stag, saying to Eden, saying to Christ Church, act like the Chinese church. If the Chinese, I mean, if the church, Chinese church wasn't loving, then you know, maybe like the. Korean church, or but that particular individual, that particular person, who doesn't have that right theology, doesn't even won't be able to quote Leviticus nineteen eighteen and Deuteronomy six five. You know, they, they don't, but just out of love and compassion for their neighbor, they show that love. Now it's worth pointing out that Jesus uses a very interesting phrase when he says "neighbor to the man who was following the neighbor," because you think here are the three characters. You think that who is the one who shows love towards this person, and therefore the neighbor should be the person who is almost dead. Who is? And but Jesus says, who is the person's neighbor? Who is the person's neighbor? Meaning, actually, the person, the focus, the main character of this story is not the Samaritan, but actually is the person who is almost half dead. And it's almost like saying, Jesus, who did this half dead person, who can't help himself, can't help others, love? And actually, the real question is nobody. He was unable to love anyone. And you see, that's actually the real story of the of the Good Samaritan. It's actually the story of the half dead man because he is unable to love. And therefore, if you realize that we are that person, we are not the priest, we are not the Levite. We are actually this half dead person who needs help, who needs love, and are incapable of loving anyone else until God comes. And God shows His love towards us, and binds our wounds, and at His own expense, you know, brings us back to health and into relationship with Him. So we are the dead person. So that's number one application. But number two, remember, in this larger context, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. And this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus is going the opposite direction. Where Jesus, when he goes to Jerusalem, he will be fully dead. <laughs> he will. He'll not just be half dead. He will be fully dead, and no one will help him. You know, everyone will abandon him, and actually, through his death, this seemingly picture of this person—if he dies, how can he help the living? How can he love the living? Actually, Jesus, precisely through his death, will pour out his love towards even Samaritans, even Levites, even priests, even us, because actually, he is able to help precisely because he is handed over to death. So there's a foreshadowing of the cross. Even in this parable of this half-dead man left to be dead by the side of the road, actually, there's a foreshadowing about how we cannot help ourselves. We cannot love others with this one love that we know that we need in order to gain eternal life, because we cannot do anything to gain eternal life. But God has done everything to bring us into relationship with Him, to bind up our bind up our wounds, to forgive us our debts, and to forgive us our sins. Okay, all right. We have still more on Luke chapter ten, and we only two chap 
two chapters in. Okay, I'm going to speed up. Verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what she said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell me, tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is bitter and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus speaks to Martha, not Mary. Here is someone who is serving that word ministry, that's serving the Lord, who's looking at someone else who isn't serving the Lord and is somehow envying that and critical of that. And God is saying to Martha, twice, Martha, Martha, very lovingly, very tenderly, maybe you should take a cue from that person you're criticizing because there's something really good about just resting in God's word and being with Jesus. You know, so many things to do today, so many ministry things, you know, for me, maybe even for you, things to just check off that list. And the most important thing, don't let that slide by you. Maybe God has put that person in your life that you're going, why is that person so lazy? Why is that person not hardworking like me? Maybe to convict you that maybe that thing is what you should be doing. That Jesus is now with you and you should be enjoying his fellowship and his word. And, you know, that's hopefully what, you know, Bible reading and prayer is for you. It's not just another thing to do like preaching or visiting that brother or writing that sermon. But actually it's a way for you to listen and to hear God's voice ministering to you. And maybe God is saying to you, Martha, Martha, whatever your name is, very, very directly, but very lovingly to say that this is a greater thing. You know, it will not be taken away from that person. And maybe you need to be in that person's shoes. Luke chapter 10. Uh, let's move on to Job chapter 24. Very convicting. Uh, it is hard. I, I must admit, it's hard harder to rest and to find a better thing than to just carry on you know especially if you're the kind of uh, productive you know get the list job done like you know the reason why i'm doing this in the morning so that i can get this out of the way and then i can maybe say then i'll rest maybe then i'll i'll be able to you know relax but actually maybe counterintuitively to start first with this not relaxing, but resting in God's word. I think that's what Mike Cain was doing in the morning. You know, he knows that everyone else is going to be starting with a busy day and the various chores in the day. And it's not just for those who are free in the mornings to, you know, to listen to this live discuss. Who has time for that? But precisely if you're busy, precisely if you're serving God in whatever capacity in your jobs, in your ministry, then maybe you need to start with God. You need to start with that joy and that rest and that refreshment that comes from just being with Jesus in his word. You know, that, that's what Martin is sitting at his feet. It's not just, therefore, oh, wow, nice feet, Jesus. But no, sitting at his feet, listening to Jesus, hearing him, being filled with his word and with his goodness. And I think then it equips you to not just be more effective. You might be less, you might be less productive, but I think you'll be also less critical 
I mean, this kind of like sidelong glance at someone who, why aren't you working as hard as me? That's that's already very unloving and already a sign that maybe your motivations for serving God needs to be retuned. Your heart needs to be realigned to loving Jesus. Job chapter 24. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who look who know him look in vain for such days. Men move boundary stones, they pasture flocks, they've stolen, they drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves, but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. There are those who rebel against the light, who don't know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no eye will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. Yet they are foam on the surface of the water. Their portion of the land is cursed, so that no one goes to the vineyards. As heat and drought snatch away the melted snow, so the grave snatches away those who have sinned. The womb forgets them, the worm feasts on them. Evil men are no longer remembered, but are broken like a tree. They prey on the barren and childless woman, and, on, and to the widow show no kindness. But God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. For a little while they are exalted, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like ears of corn. If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? If you can imagine what Job is saying, he's painting a picture first of the victim and the victimizer. You know, you see just how true this is and how sad this is in a world when the victimizers just get oppressed and they have to work for the, you know, the victims. They have to work for all these rich people, but they themselves go hungry. They themselves are sleepless and they sleep in the cold. Whereas the rich people, they just get away with it, and it's it's sad. But it's true. It's this injustice for the 
victims and there is no judgment for um, the victimizers. And the question that just keeps going on in my mind is, verse 1, why? why? Why does God do this? Why does God allow this to happen? You know, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Verse 1, you know, those who look to Him look in vain for such days. You know, why doesn't it come? You know, why hasn't God done something about this situation? And the first section, the whole first section that's talking about all these people who move the boundaries. <laughs> like, uh, back in school, we used to have this saying, move the goalpost. <laughs> that means, you know, you try to score, but then, hey, you know, it, the goalpost has moved. <laughs> it's, it's unfairness. You know, these guys, he just, they just, they're able to move, work the system. They're able to move the boundaries to their own advantage. They've stolen stuff, stolen flocks, verse 2. They drive away the orphan's donkey and the widow's ox in pledge. Meaning, they make their riches off the backs of the poor. They, they just you know, take advantage of the poor. And it's just so wrong. It's just so pitiful. You know, verse 7, the poor lacking clothes. They spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves. They are drenched by the mountain rains. They hug the rocks for lack of shelter. And it talks about the fatherless child, uh, talks about the infant seized for debt. They have no clothes. They go about naked. They carry sheaves. That means they're still working for a living, but they don't have enough even to fill their thirst. You know, they tread wine presses yet suffer thirst. You think of people who make luxury wine or luxury goods in these factories, but, you know, they, they could never taste this. You know, they're still thirsty, but they're quenching the thirst with wine of those who drink such stuff. And so verse 12, the groans of the dying rise from the city and the souls of the wounded cry out for help, but God charges no one with wrongdoing. You know, lots of cries of oppression and, you know, where is God in this situation? Um, again, worth noting that this is in the Bible. You know, the Bible cries out for this justice. And, you know, it echoes all these cries that I'll admit, you know, being here in 21st century Cambridge, we don't see it. You know, if you see it also, it's nothing, it's not like this, not to this degree. And we turn a blind eye to this, but God sees, the Bible sees, and the Bible calls us to see this injustice in the world. And then he talks about those who actually cause the oppression. And he talks about darkness and light in verse 13, how they love the darkness but they really hate the light. So meaning they're trying to hide all their evil deeds. They love the darkness. Those who rebel against the light, verse 13, they don't know its ways or stay in its path. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. So the, like Batman. <laughs> oh, it's nighttime. Now I can be Batman, but this is the Joker. Yeah, bad guy. <laughs> um, he, he, he kills, you know, he steals like a thief. And even the adulterer, you know, who waits, who watches for dusk and he says, no eye will see me and keeps his face concealed. In the dark, verse 16, the men break into houses. They shut themselves in. They want nothing to do in the, in the, with the light. And then verse 17 is really interesting. To them, deep darkness is morning. So it's people 
and I'm thinking of my friends who are programmers. I think you know who you are. You know, you you are Batman. You know, in school we used to have this term: you are Batman because you only wake up at night, and then during the daytime you're sleeping like a vampire, like Batman who only operates in the evening. But for them, the morning is the darkness. That's when they're productive. That's when they're up and at it. That's when they're drinking their coffees and thinking, "What shall I do?" Except all the things that they do is evil, and then they make friends with the terrors of darkness. And there's something very sinister, actually. And in all seriousness, you know, if you operate mainly only in the evenings, and you actually really love it, because somehow there there's no attention to what you're doing. You know, you're obscured from any kind of like accountability, and you can kind of like get away with more stuff. There's something in all our hearts that wants that. You know, we want that privacy. We don't want that scrutiny. We don't want it to be obvious that you know, like even for me, you know, I close my curtains because because it's so embarrassing if someone saw me like doing this right now. You, you feel, you feel exposed. But actually, that exposure, that light, that you know, that daytime that God gives us, is so that you know, when we do things in secret, we tend to get away with things, and therefore we think it's okay. But when it's exposed, when other people can see, it, then we go, hey, okay, maybe this is not okay. Maybe we should not, you know, do this thing, and therefore we're a bit more cautious. We're a bit more, you know, transparent in our motivations and in our actions. And I think this is just so true, isn't it? I mean, um, people who try to hide their lives, who try to hide behind this cloak of darkness, and they're productive. They still do a lot of stuff. It's just that they want to do it behind the scenes. There's something very sinister about that, especially if they prosper through that and they oppress other people. Through that, and you, you think this kind of darkness again? Yeah, social media, and I guess this is this is a warning to me as well. You know, something to be careful about. You know,、um, I can say all kind of stuff, and you know, I can get away with it because you know, no one no one watches the channel. Let's be frank. You know, no, no one's going to see this,、uh, but it doesn't mean that you know God doesn't see, that God won't judge, and that I shouldn't actually want to be more accountable, not less. Because of you know this you know this temptation to just hide things to be in the dark, and then the last bit is is quite quite weird because you know he says essentially says that the evil people will be judged, and that doesn't sound like Job. So I'm going to check、um, the other translations.、Uh, let's see the other translations in verse twenty, verse eighteen onwards. If I look at the English Standard Version. Bear with me, English Standard Version. I'm looking at Bible Gateway, verse twenty.、Um, ah, okay, all right. Yeah, in verse eighteen,、uh, in the English Standard Version, it says, "You say this. You say this." So that does make sense. I think maybe because in the original it doesn't have the words "you say," but it sounds like what his friends would say because verse eighteen sounds like this. Yet they they are foam on the surface of the water. Their portion is cursed. No one goes to their vineyards. You know, as the heat and drought snatch away the melted snow, so the grave snatches away those who have sinned. So meaning, you know, those who have done all these wrong things, they'll be judged. You know, they'll be gone. You know, God will judge them. And that sounds a lot like their friend's argument. But I think Job is repeating this these words to his friends Eliphaz, Bildad, and the like, and to say that you say this, but actually it doesn't happen. You know the womb forgets them, the womb feasts on them. Evil men are no longer remembered, but they are broken like a tree. That is the ideal, but that doesn't happen. And then that, so that's why he ends by saying, "If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing?" 
you know, it actually doesn't work this way as much as we want it to. That God judges, you know, the proud and the oppressor and the evildoer. He doesn't, you know, not yet at least. And it's not clear in the world that we live in. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's Job's perspective on the victim and the victimizer, on the oppressor and the oppressed, you know, that the oppressor doesn't get this judgment that's coming towards them. He doesn't see it. Whereas those who are oppressed, you know, they don't get the justice that they're looking for. You know, so there's this imbalance and this gap that just keeps growing and growing and growing. Yeah. Hmm. Anything else? Um, something that caught my eye was just this mention of the city. Does it say the city? Verse 12, For out of the city the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. I think there's something about cities, about places where you know people gather and there's this concentration of people and population where there's also this concentration of oppression and you know i think of cities like back home in kuala lumpur singapore definitely where you have this advancement of wealth and you know there's transportation you can you have all these very smooth and technological advancements that just make life easier you know um, everything just kind of works this high bandwidth internet that kind of thing but also in these very places of high concentration of supposedly prosperity there's high concentration of injustice and oppression as well you know out of the city the dying they groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help out of these cities and it's in these cities that you find this injustice yet god charges no one with wrong you know all the courts are in the cities all the officials all the governments are located in the cities and actually this is where they kind of like hide and they continue on with their acts of darkness and actually you would hope that god would judge you know perform his justice in these cities but actually he doesn't and so cities are maybe if you live in one cities are the places where you kind of need to be a bit more transparent a bit more conscious that this is the darkness that Job is speaking about. It's concentrated in these populations where we gather around um, cities, you know, looking for jobs, looking for that advancement in a career, that next phase of life. But actually, we just need to be careful that we don't become one of these evil oppressors ourselves because we think it's easier to get away with it in these places where everyone else is doing the same thing. So Job chapter 24. Yep, that's it. What's our last? Oh, one more chapter. <laughs> Uh, let me get some, maybe I should drink some water. The coffee is making me hyper. Sorry if I've been speaking too quickly. You know, it's again the coffee, it's the morning. Um, uh, but I'm so glad to be able to do this in the morning and to have it kind of like shape the rest of the day. I think this will help. This will just help and just, you know, what I have to do the rest of the day shape. You know, I think that that passage again from Luke chapter 10 about resting by Jesus' feet and making that like the main thing that I want to do today, you know, to hear his voice, to just enjoy his company. And then everything else, if it doesn't quite, you know, go up to par, you know, doing this Bible study or preparing for that talk, you know, that should come secondarily to just enjoying God's presence. Jesus says again, do not rejoice. The spirits that submit to you rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Just to rejoice in that, to give thanks for his forgiveness, his fellowship, his goodness in Christ. Yeah.
Oh, wow. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is... Oh, okay. Should I take a break and come back to this? Okay, so you'll have a very tired out version of me reading 1 Corinthians 11. This is such an important chapter. I'm not going to do this justice, uh, but let's just read and hear what Paul has to say in this pivotal chapter. It has so many applications in the church. So, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, and since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair it is a disgrace to him but that if a woman has long hair it is her glory for long hair is given to her as a covering if anyone wants to be contentious about this we have no other practice nor do the churches of God yowzers <laughs> how do we deal with this um, it's talking about head coverings especially for women in church have you ever seen that you know brethren churches especially they still practice that they will have this like thing sometimes it looks like a like a handkerchief you know it looks like do i have one a handkerchief yeah it looks like something like this and they wear it on their head and then they go into church anywhere i've actually seen um girls in my own church actually they do that and out of embarrassment they don't they, they don't do that and actually i would encourage them actually it's not a bad thing uh, because in some way at least they're applying 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to their own lives and in the practices of their own churches. I, I wouldn't say that that's a wrong thing. In fact, I think that would be a faithful reading of this chapter. But also, I think it's okay if you don't. Uh, and why is that? So, okay. So, um, it's talking about uh, headship. You see that word again and again. Verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Everyone has a head. Everyone has this sign of authority over him, including Christ. So for Christ is God, for man is Christ, for woman is man. There is this order of creation. This goes back to Genesis. And so um, there is this order that is meant to be reflected in the orderly worship and orderly gather gathering of God's people. And so just in some way, if you're able to reflect this submission and authority in the church, 
you know, that's a good thing. And it may be, you know, head coverings. It doesn't need to be, but there should be some measure of that. I think in obedience to God's word, because even Christ again submits himself to God. And so the reason why I say church is because again it talks about uh, verse sixteen. We have no other practice nor to the churches of God, and then also it talks about praying and prophesying in verse five. Uh, woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, and then also further down I think it says uh, verse thirteen. It is is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So there is meant to be this. Um, this display of submission of authority of God's headship, especially when we come together as God's people, especially reflected in the genders, men and women, especially I think especially in marriages as well. Men and women here could be wives and husbands. Uh, certainly in Ephesians chapter five, there is again that appeal to Genesis to show again that headship of the man and the woman. Um, and I would say um, to the churches where they do have this practice of the head coverings, you know that this is where it comes from. It, it's worth actually just tying it back to scripture that what you're doing is not just a tradition for the sake of it. Although the word tradition is used, I think in verse two, I think that is the word tradition that it means something that's handed down. But that tradition is handed down that stems from scripture. What you're doing is a reflection of ultimately all our submission to Christ. But reflected in our submission to one another. So submission to Christ, submission to God, even Christ submits to God. But therefore, there is a kind of submission that's reflected here in the church, and you can actually see it. Um, and it should be perceivable, you know, that here are people, you know, submitting to one another, you know, submit to their pastors, they submit to the government, they submit to one another in men and women in headship of one another, especially in marriages. It's just obvious. And so that's for the churches that actually have some kind of tradition of doing this. I think that's a good thing. I wouldn't say that's a bad thing. I, although you know, it it does seem strange in our twenty first century, you know, ears to hear that there's such a thing, but it does happen. But because most of the churches these days don't do this, therefore I think there's there's therefore an even greater challenge. How do you apply this text? Imagine you have to preach this, and everyone goes, "Okay, all right, ha ha ha." You know, all those brethren churches they're still doing this thing. You know, how quaint. But you know, the challenge to us is at least they're doing something to apply this text. What are we doing to display this symbol of headship and authority under God that's displayed in headship and authority with one another? You know, if it's not obvious, if there is no difference between the genders, especially he talks about the long hair, short hair, and the idea there is that. Men look like men, women look like women. That's what he's talking about. It's not just that you have to do this. What? How long is long? You know, can we have short hairs? But the idea is that the women still are perceivably displaying their glory. You know, they are made as women. God has made them there. Therefore, they look like women. And men look like men. That's why he's talking about the long hair. You know, men don't look. They they don't look like one. There's a distinctiveness, and therefore they rejoice in that and they display that. You know, how do we then display this headship? Under God, if we don't have the coverings, you know, there, I think there are ways to do that. I think there are ways of deference. There are ways in just, you know, the roles that are distinct between the genders that we can show that. But again, to tie that to Scripture and to show that, hey, this is, this is why we are doing this to make it clear that it's actually God's command. It's not just some kind of enforced idea that we cooked up, but that you know, there's a goodness in this. 
God himself, you know, displays this in the headship of Christ, and therefore we are mirroring that headship. And so it's challenging. I think it's even more challenging for us. If we don't have this overt uh, tradition and practice of this head covering, then what do we have? If the answer is nothing, I think that's, that's quite convicting, you know, nothing. How do you know then that you're obeying scripture in this way? So that's the challenge. Let's carry on verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that you come together as a church. There are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat? and drink in or do you despise the church of god and humiliate those who have nothing what shall i say to you shall i praise you for this certainly not for i received from the lord what i also passed on to you the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the lord eats and drinks judgment on himself that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep but if we judged ourselves we would not come under judgment when we are judged by the lord we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world so then my brothers when you come together to eat wait for each other if anyone is hungry he should eat at home so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment and when i come i will give further directions ho 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 very very tricky passage talking about communion he calls it the lord's supper and he talks about jesus having this supper with his disciples you know verse 23 i received from the lord what i pass unto you jesus you know the night he betrayed he had this supper he took bread he took wine he says this is my body this is my blood do this in remembrance of me so from that one meal where he shares this bread and this cup you know christians continue on having that meal whenever they come together because they're remembering jesus they're reenacting this last meal which is symbolic of jesus as blood and his body given for the forgiveness of all of us who are now in his body of christ verse 26 whenever you eat this bread drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until you comes it's, there's this evangelistic proclamation as we're eating this we are saying jesus is coming back jesus is coming back so we continue doing this to remember jesus that he died on the cross and therefore he will come back to judge and to save so that's one positive there now, whenever you come together, you meet as a church, it's so important to remind each other that Jesus died for our sins. You know, his body and his blood, you know, broken and it's spilled for us, but also that Jesus is coming back. And that's what this communion meal does. So that bit is obvious. We read these words every time in my church when we celebrate 
communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, you know, uh, it comes from chapter 10, you know, our communion with one another, that word fellowship with the Lord. So it's good, you know, communion with God, communion with one another. Here it's called the Lord's Supper. That's another name for it. The Eucharist, you know, where Jesus says he gave thanks. I think verse 24, he gave thanks. Eucharisteo, that means you gave thanks to God. And therefore Jesus blessed God, not just blessed the elements, the bread and the cup, but actually blessing God, giving thanks for God for providing us this sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these three names, whichever name that you use in your church to celebrate that, that's, you know, you find it all here is biblical. And some use one cup. Some use many tiny little cups. Eden Baptist, you know, they, they have tiny little plastic cups. Back home in my church in Singapore, Adam wrote, we use tiny little cups. Um, some have one bread and one cup only. Uh, I remember my friend, uh, when he first got the first big cup, you know, with the wine passed down and then they gave him this like napkin as well. He drank from the cup and then he took the napkin. You're supposed to wipe the cup with the napkin. He went, he wiped his mouth <laughs> and he passed it to the next person. He didn't know the napkin was meant for the cup, not for his mouth. But yeah, you know, those are the kind of things that happen when you're not used to the different traditions. But again, it's a, a memorial meal. You know, it's meant to be symbolic of that meal that was celebrated by Jesus in the past, but also that upcoming meal, that banquet that we'll celebrate with Jesus when he returns. Okay, having, having described all that, you know, the meal, this communion, and also the gathering whenever you gather. Paul begins by saying, your gatherings are not good because the meal is celebrated in the wrong way. So let's look again at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, you know, nothing, 0% you score, no praise for you because your meetings do more harm than good. Imagine Paul saying to you, it's better for you not to go to church than you go to church. He's not talking about people who skip church. He's saying your meetings, the fact that you're meeting for this Bible study, you know, is causing more distress. And actually, Tony points out people are dying. <laughs> you're doing the wrong thing. You're being unloving towards one another whenever you gather. So meeting for the sake of meeting, Paul is saying, is dangerous. But on the other hand, Paul is talking about meeting together because here he's not talking about when he says church, he's not, he doesn't even use the word church. He uses the word gatherings. You come together, come together. We find that phrase again and again, whenever you come together. It's talking about your Bible studies. It's talking about your Sunday school. Whenever you come together as Christians, that's the church. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, Paul's description of the church is when Christians gather together. That's when you're meant to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's when you're considered the church. But this particular meeting, you're meeting together, very, very bad, more harm than good. In the first place, verse 18, I hear that there are divisions. You know, you're, you're arguing with one another, you know, oh, you know, uh, fighting with one another. And he says, I believe it. And interestingly, he says, it's actually a good thing there are divisions. <laughs> verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences, or in the Greek it's heresies, you know, heresies among you to show which of you has God's approval. Meaning, actually, in these divisions, God is using the division to say that actually, you know, these guys actually do have it right. And here it's probably talking about not divisions in terms of character. And actually, it might not even be the divisions of chapter one, whereby I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, that kind of thing. But actually, there's a real misunderstanding of God's word and a real understanding of it. That's why the word heresy is, that's why this difference of opinion is not just opinion, that someone actually in this group actually totally misunderstands the gospel. And therefore, judgment has come so that those who do, you can see that those are the ones who actually hold on to the true gospel. So actually Paul is saying sometimes, sometimes these divisions have a place. 
especially when it comes to the truth of the gospel to show those who have God's approval. And then he starts talking about this meal, this Lord's uh, Lord's Supper. When you come together, verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, gets drunk. The other one gets drunk. You know, don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the gathering, the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So two groups of people who come together, but one gets drunk, but gets hungry. You know, one has homes, you know, can eat in, can eat lavishly. The other person actually doesn't have homes. Now, interestingly enough, what happens here when they gather together is that they eat. You know, so this meal of this bread and this cup is in the context of a bigger meal. Have you ever thought of that? Actually, one of the most biblical things to do as a church is to eat together and not just little, little tiny snacks, but actually eat such that you can actually get drunk, get full. You shouldn't do that, but it means that there's enough food for you to get full, to get drunk. And in homes, it's not in the church building or wherever, it means various, various homes. They're meeting together almost like your Bible studies, except that before your Bible studies, and I know that the Chinese fellowship, the CF does this, they have this big meal that they eat together. Oh, eat together. And then the only thing about after eating this big meal is they have to study the Bible and they get sleepy. Oh. <laughs> but imagine during one of those meals, someone eats up all the food and the other person is hungry. And it's talking about maybe those who have to work the entire day and this is the only meal they have. And so they come and then all the food is gone and all the drink is drunk. And then therefore, Paul is saying that meal almost stains the memorial meal of the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is celebrated as part of that meal. Again, it's strange to our ears because we think of it as this snack. We have this little snack of this bread and this cup. But actually Paul is saying, you, every time you gather, you have this big meal and then you have a special part of that meal that remembers the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, because it is a meal, it's a smaller meal pointing to a bigger meal of, you know, God's sacrifice, God's fellowship with us, God providing Christ for us. But he says, you know, humiliate one another who have nothing. Verse 22, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. He talks a bit more about this verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, guilty of sinning against the body and the blood. How is it that, and, and here, you know, you have to wonder, um, because sometimes they do say this, right? Those of you who are taking communion, if you're not a Christian yet, maybe don't do that. Those of you who, you know, maybe you shouldn't be taking it, you think you shouldn't, you shouldn't be taking that. And there's a cautiousness to this. It comes from here, by the way, because you're eating in an unworthy way and it can cause sin. And it can actually cause death because and later on he says, that's why some of you have fallen asleep. It's not falling asleep again, let's see if you ate too much, you know, chap fan or too much kuluyo or too much. Oh, I'm thinking all the food we used to have. We used to have lots of egg because as students, that was the cheapest thing to have. But lots of rice as well. And you ate so much and you're so sleepy. And so, oh, that's why you've fallen asleep. No, this is God killed you. <laughs> the idea, falling asleep in the Bible, it's dying. Uh, and so God has judged them for eating the elements of the Lord's communion in an unworthy way. And therefore, they've been killed as a sign of judgment. You know, what does it mean to eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way? Is it that I've done some sin this week and that's for that's unworthy? Possible. Maybe I still have hatred in my heart and maybe that's unworthy. Maybe I'm not a Christian and maybe it's unworthy. Verse 28, some clues there. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats the bread without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment. On himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, 
and a number of you have fallen asleep, been killed. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the Lord. So what's this judgment? What's this examining of yourself before you eat the bread out of the cup? It's a connection with the earlier bit where he talks whereby someone eats first and leaves nothing for the other. It's not eating and considering the other people who are sharing this meal with you. So when he says examine yourself, he's not saying, me, myself, I'm eating this meal. What have, I, what have I done against God? How can I be forgiven by God? But actually us sharing this meal together. Because when he says considering the body of the Lord, he's talking about the body of Christ, all of us coming together. You know, it's, it's this idea that this particular meal is not like the rest of the meal. It's meant to be shared with everyone else. It's meant to be considered that God has saved all of us and brought all of us together as the body of Christ. And you get this from verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait. Wait for each other. Wait for everyone. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's celebrate this together. There's this consideration. There's this other person-centeredness. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. It's strange, right? You're coming for this meal, but if you're hungry, you eat at home first. It means, why have I come to this meal? You know, you, you, the food is meant to be fill my hunger, right? No, this meal is for those who either don't have the means to feed themselves at home, but more importantly, this meal is meant to be shared, just like the Lord's Supper. And here he's talking about the bigger meal, not just the Lord's Supper, but everything to do with our gatherings together. And you can apply this to, you know, even the sermon, you know, to the songs. You know, is this sermon something that will feed everyone? Is, are these songs are something that everyone can sing? You know, you think of the different people who are there, you know, different levels of education, different languages, different ages. You know, is this something that will feed everyone with Christ? Now, the elements are a symbol of that, that God has provided his son for us. But again, the smaller meal is pointing to that bigger meal, that this bread is pointing to this bigger body, that actually when we come together, when we examine each other, we examine each other, our relationship with one another as a body of Christ. And that's the judgment that God has poured out on this body because they've been selfish. They've not waited for one another. They've not considered one another. And they've been selfishly just thinking about themselves. Now, isn't that more convicting than saying, have you sinned? Have you done anything? Are you worthy? But actually, are you a loving church? Are there heresies? Are there divisions within your church? Whether there are different strat stratifying you know, status, you know, I'm here, you're here, and therefore I can oppress you, that kind of thing. Does that happen here? I think there is especially in the city church, especially in the big church, especially a church that is wealthy, where you have people who can, you know, you know, spoil themselves, gorge themselves on the sermon, on the on the on the food, on the you know, they they get a lot out of it, but some people leave hungry, empty. Who are those people? You know, who are the weaker people who really don't have very much? They come to your church and this is all they have. And your opportunity to share with them all the all the all the all the provisions of Christ, of especially his salvation, but you take it all for yourself. And therefore God, when he pours out this judgment, you know, it's not just the people who've fallen sick and fallen asleep who are being judged. It's a judgment on the entire church. Because the entire church, their whole meetings, God uh, Paul has zero <laughs> commendation for them. That this whole church itself just doesn't get it that it's about one another. It's not just me, myself, but God has saved all of us as his body. And therefore, when we come together, it's about one another. It's not about me. 
It's about the weaker brothers, especially waiting for them, waiting maybe even on them and making sure that everyone is fed. Everyone is fed with Christ. Everyone's able to be reminded and able to be filled and retune their hearts to Christ. And that's what it means to come together as God's church. That's what it means to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as his body and to be in communion with him and to be in communion with one another. Very convicting. Very convicting. I mean, uh, it's very tempting to do the other thing, to be selfish and to justify it and to get away with it. And sometimes when God judges such churches, we wonder why. It's so obvious why we are, you know, selfish. We think of Christ only in terms of my salvation, my filling, my hunger, my, you know, my feeding. And actually God wants us to consider all his body, all his people in Christ. Cool. Okay, that was really, really very heavy. And so now I'm going to end with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Christ considered us in the giving of his body and his blood on the cross. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. But more than that, we ask for that perspective and for that conviction to consider just how, you know, this blood and this salvation and this forgiveness is given to all of us and that we share in this salvation. Help us to realize this, especially when we come together. It might be on Zoom. It might be, you know, uh, just, you know, not in a very significant way, but still that's an opportunity to take note of those who are weaker than us, those who are hungrier than us, and to have that concern that they are fed before us. You know, we have means, those of us who do that, let us eat at home, you know, let us fill ourselves at home, that when we come together, it's coming together in you, coming together for the sake, especially for those who are weaker among us, and making sure that everyone is reminded of Christ, everyone is filled with the goodness of his salvation and the knowledge of his love. Help us to do this, to bring honor to you, Help our honor our gatherings, our churches, our coming together, not you know be, be a time of criticizing one another, of divisions, but one of really celebration of the goodness that you've given us in Christ. And thank you again for his sacrifice that makes this all possible and real. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. See you. Bye. Mm.